0: This is Kick-Ass News, I'm Ben Mathis. Have you ever wondered how Kobe Bryant became an Oscar nominee? Did you even know he's an Oscar nominee? These are the kind of questions that Cal Fussman gets answers to in his podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Best-selling author and Esquire columnist Cal Fussman talks to people who've lived extraordinary lives from Kobe to Dr. Oz to Tim Ferriss. These are really deep, thoughtful conversations, and you'll end up with burning questions answered and a few new ones to think about. Subscribe to Big Questions with Cal Fussman now in your favorite podcast app, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. And now, enjoy today's show. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. In 1935, Upton Sinclair wrote a semi-satirical novel called It Can't Happen Here. Published during the rise of fascism in Europe, the novel describes the rise of a politician named Buzz Windrip, who foments fear and promises drastic economic and social reforms while promoting a return to patriotism and traditional values. After defeating Franklin Roosevelt to become president, he takes complete control of the government and imposes a plutocratic totalitarian rule with the help of a ruthless paramilitary force similar to Hitler's SS. When it first came out, the American public drew comparisons between Sinclair's fictional Windrip and Louisiana Governor Huey Long, but some today might find equally valid parallels with a certain modern-day populist sitting in the White House. In a play on the title of Upton Sinclair's novel, a new book called Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America attempts to answer just that question with a series of essays on whether or not we might be a little naive to think America is immune to authoritarianism. It's edited by my guest today, Cass Sunstein. Cass Sunstein is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School, where he's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy. From 2009 to 2012, he served in the Obama administration as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. He also happens to be the most cited law professor in the United States and the author of many books, including the bestseller Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness, Simpler, The Future of Government and Hashtag Republic. Today, Cass Sunstein attempts to answer the question, can it happen here, and explains why if it did happen, it would probably occur as a very gradual process rather than a bold power grab. He discusses a few of America's past flirtations with authoritarianism, some of the weaknesses in our system that could be exploited by an aspiring strongman, and what I like to call the dictator's playbook. He talks about the ways that tribalism, nationalism, and conspiracy theories create a fertile breeding ground for authoritarianism. He reveals whether he thinks President Trump secretly aspires to that sort of power. And of course, I ask America's foremost legal scholar to weigh in on the Russia investigation. Coming up with Cass Sunstein in just a moment. Sunstein has edited and contributed to a new book of thoughtful and in some cases worrying essays called Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America. Professor Sunstein, thanks for talking with me.
1: Uh, All thanks to you. A pleasure to be here.
0: Well, the title of the book is a play on It Can't Happen Here, the famous satirical story by Upton Sinclair. Uh, Just for context, remind listeners what that book was all about.
1: Okay, So that's a book written in the 1930s and basically it's a novel about fascism coming to America and it's in a period of course in which fascism was coming to countries that were democratic like Germany and the novel suggested that um, the human heart is um, prone to fascist uh, appeals and uh, this can happen even in countries which have strong democratic traditions.
0: Yeah, and you open the book with your updated take on Sinclair's book. Uh, You describe an extreme version of an authoritarian dystopia under Donald Trump. Uh, What might that look like?
1: Well, the idea was to uh, spark imagination rather than to make a prediction. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if there's a terrorist attack in the United States um, under President Trump— uh, some very uh, strong reactions we should hope for uh, to protect the country, but some strong reactions that we maybe would not hope for, which would involve um, very severe abridgments of civil rights and civil liberties, they are uh, certainly worth uh, worrying over. So given, um, you know, for those who like President Trump, those who don't like him so much, his um, uh, interest, let's say, in um, keeping the country safe, which is laudable, uh, might lead to uh, a radically decreased interest, let's say, in uh, due process of law, uh, protection of personal privacy and freedom of speech.
0: So it's sort of like one of those movie scenarios when there's a terrorist attack or something happens and then martial law imposed and then it just spirals from there.
1: Huh? Yes. And you can easily imagine it, whether or not it's um, you know likely. You can imagine a ramping up of surveillance policies of the sort we saw after 9-11, uh, monitoring of emails and telephone calls. You could imagine a politician, including a president, saying privacy just isn't smart. And <laughs> cases of disloyalty to the United States, which might be uh, sympathy with, uh, let's say, uh, people who are our enemies. It might be that that form of disloyalty would be under severe social pressure in the sense that people would be very upset to see it. But it could also be under legal pressure in the sense that you could uh, certainly imagine and has happened in American history prosecutions.
0: Immediately after you describe this scenario, you say it's probably not likely to actually happen. Why not?
1: Well, I am, of the various authors in the book, uh, relatively optimistic in the sense that we do have, and this is something that I think deserves as much attention as the risks, we do have um, a blessing uh, in our country, which is a system of separation of powers. And that blessing entails independent courts, And even if the independent courts are populated by uh, one or another president, they tend to be um, at least most of the time protective of at least core rights. We have a requirement that the president get approval from the Congress of the United States before at least a wide range of stuff be done and that from the start of our system really uh, was intended as a check on the power of anyone who would aspire to be a king. So that's a blessing. But there's also another kind of blessing which is less legal and more cultural, which is that Americans have developed a kind of uh, fierce protectiveness of their own independence from government. And this goes way back and it remains very strong. And so long as Americans are fiercely protective of freedom of speech, privacy, um, the right to vote, the right to throw the bums out, the, the risk of uh, something even close to a fascist system in our country. In my view, as I say, the, some of the authors in the book don't agree, but in my view, it's relatively low. Having said that, uh, there's a lot of points on the continuum between, let's say, a perfect democracy and a fascist system. And there are lots of points that move us from perfect democracy to a fascist system that don't get us all the way to the nightmare scenario that are really bad points to be on. And uh, that, I think, is a realistic worry that we will get, or in some ways we maybe are, on, on uh, points that are far from the ideal
0: as you mentioned earlier, we have plenty of examples or at least some examples of that in our history, like Abraham Lincoln suspending habeas corpus or the Japanese internment camps during World War II. And yet it seems to me that while we might occasionally walk the line or even cross it just a little bit, sometimes we may flirt with authoritarianism. Inevitably, every time we seem to pretty quickly snap back to our senses, wouldn't you say?
1: I think that's basically right but I worry a little bit about um, global statements that mask uh, years and decades of not good things and global statements that mask uh, real problems for particular groups even if most people are enjoying liberty. So uh, the fact that uh, a lot of people were lynched in the United States by, because of their skin color and that was right. sometimes did with the, done with the you know, acquiescence or worse of the authorities. Uh, denial of the vote to women until 1920. Um, the enslavement of millions of people in the American South. Uh, these are things that are you know, not fascism in the literal sense. Uh, but are a form of it that, that did happen here. and We have fellow citizens now um, or people within our borders who are either at risk of being incarcerated or who are actually incarcerated when the thing they did either wasn't against the law but they're accused and powerless or whether, when the thing they did while formally against the law, it might be a drug offense or something, was the kind of thing for which most Americans wouldn't have to worry about years in prison. So uh, to think about forms of, let's say, um, abuse of authority that are uh, daily presences in the the lives of our brothers and sisters, uh, that's probably a good idea.
0: Perhaps it's the optimist in me that I'm working under the assumption that America indeed has the checks and balances to prevent this sort of thing, largely because it's worked so far. But are there weaknesses within the actual system that could be exploited by someone if they had authoritarian leanings?
1: I think so. So the the first is that the power of the president... Is immense, and the system of separation of powers as it was originally designed, did not anticipate what has happened to our presidency and A lot of Republicans uh, kind of made that cry under Presidents Clinton and Obama, uh, and Democrats did the same under Bush and are doing the same under trump and Whether a Democrat or a Republican, it is true that if the president on his own wants to do some pretty rough things. Uh, it may involve, you know, ramping up regulation of private business or it may involve uh, cracking down on children of illegal immigrants or it may involve doing something with respect to people whose uh, parents came here on a boat who aren't children anymore and the, mm. but they just think this is their country. The president can do a lot there to make life much worse for people and that is – uh Uh, I think a a genuine concern and it's something that our beautiful system of separation of powers uh, didn't quite uh, uh, anticipate. The other thing is though the courts are independent um, and that's crucial. uh, They often get involved late and when they get involved, often they are uh, respectful and this is in many ways a good thing but not only a good thing. They're respectful of their limited place in our system. So they might think to themselves when the going gets very tough, you know, there are some people who are elected to run the country and we're not those people. So if the uh, steps are taken, let's say, to intrude on privacy or liberty, uh, the courts historically have often been uh, reluctant to intervene. So the censorship of free speech that happened in the – uh, period around World War I and some of the stuff that happened in the McCarthy era, the courts were not, you know, fierce protectors of our rights. And this is, in a way, ancient history. I'm, uh, you know, well aware of that. But I think it's a, 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 it's a little too complacent to think that if things get tough, we can ultimately trust the judges. That's mm-hmm. to be hoped for. It might be true, but history doesn't say emphatic yes exclamation point. Uh,
0: Historically speaking, is there usually a pattern or an order in which these things usually happen? In other words, does it usually start with voter suppression, rollbacks on free speech, crackdowns on the press or the courts? Is there a dictator's playbook, so to speak?
1: Uh, Yes, I think so. And we want to talk about the United States and then we want to talk about the world. So Uh, Let's talk generally that uh, in the world often there's a crisis, it can be an economic crisis, it can be a national security crisis. Um, In Germany under Nazism it was an an economic, uh, a severe economic um, downturn that helped make Hitler possible. And then what happens is that uh, if the leader is delivering and if people see that their lives are going a little bit better then if the leader uh, seizes power, the public's uh, opposition will be softened because things are kind of going well for people. And mm-hmm. Often what happens is that people who are faced with a government that let's say is a little bit or a lot authoritarian leaning, uh, people, you know, they're busy with their families and their friends and their jobs and they're not thinking uh, what's my government doing today? Or if they're thinking about it, they're thinking, well, uh, you know, it's bad or it's it's not ideal, but I got other things to worry about. And that kind of I've got other things to worry about in the face of an authoritarian leader uh, can be a really serious problem. I think we're seeing that a bit in, in Turkey. In the United States, mm-hmm. partly for the reasons, you know, you point to that we have a, a pretty terrific constitutional order and a, a pretty strong culture of uh, freedom, um, the, the occasions are for, let's say, uh, liberty denying action are either some sort of external threat or some sense that there's an internal uprising about which we have to do something. So the 1960s where there were internal uprisings and the 50s where there was – it's actually true – internal uh, communist uh, threats um to, to react against that might well be legitimate but it can lead to steps that are excessive. And often what has happened is that things culminate in something that's terrible. The internment of the, the Japanese-Americans on the West Coast is an extreme example. And then it takes a while before the country makes a judgment that it was terrible. We mm-hmm. get there. Uh, But the fact that we get there I think makes it a little too um, comforting in the sense that people didn't just gratuitously say, let's round up Japanese-Americans. They thought we're at war with Japan and there might be some people within the population of Japanese-Americans whose loyalty is unclear and the first priority is to uh, protect our country. And we're talking now about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, in my view, is the greatest president in American history. So the fact that the arc goes kind of in the way you suggest, that we straighten ourselves out, and in some ways, I think, um, strengthen our our commitment to liberty, that um, uh, doesn't tell us what we really do when the chips are down. And, you know, now we see... um, some things involving Russia's really attack on our system in the 2016 election. And um, I, th- I think it's sad and true to say the replication of some of Russia's rhetorical strategies at least coming out of the White House by a president who of course is, is loyal to our country, but he's using some of the same rhetorical strategies that Russia's using. And while that's words, not, um, you know, not deeds, with Russia it was deeds as well as words, from the White House it's words, it is a, um, a warning sign. So if, if a dog is barking, uh, there might be a bite en route.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Cass Sunstein when we come back in just a minute. When it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. That's why Quip has combined dentistry and design to make a new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of traditional electric brushes. With Quip, guiding pulses alert you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount effortless. I've been brushing with Quip for a little over a month now, and I've got to say, this was one of the best parts about Quip for me, because I never know how long I'm supposed to brush or how long I'm supposed to spend on the front, the back, the tops of my teeth. I overbrush, I underbrush, but Quip has it all timed out so I don't even have to think about it. Another great thing about Quip, it comes with this handy mount that actually suctions onto your mirror so your wet toothbrush isn't just sitting in a dark drawer somewhere growing bacteria. For God's sake, let your brush breathe, folks. Plus, the mount can be used as a cover when you take your Quip traveling. And the Quip subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Again, I love this nothing to think about. I don't have to wonder when it's time to go to the store and buy a fresh toothbrush. No wonder Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals and was named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year. Find out why for yourself. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com kickass right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com kickass, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot slash kickass. Today's episode is also sponsored by App River. If you're a business owner, things like email and software ought to be easy, right? Not something you have to spend your days thinking about. And you sure don't want to worry about hackers and spammers infecting your system, stealing your data, or holding it hostage. That's what makes AppRiver a great choice, especially for companies that don't have an IT department. For small and mid-sized businesses, AppRiver can be your IT team, or at least free up your computer nerds to do things that actually make you money. With AppRiver, you can get email, spam and virus filtering, email encryption, archiving and compliance solutions. They can secure your email on your servers or just handle it for you with Office 365 or Hosted Exchange. Their services are all cloud-based, so you pay a subscription instead of buying hardware, software and licenses. Try any of their services free, cancel anytime, and know that their U.S.-based Phenomenal Care is available all day, every day. Ready to make IT easy? Visit appriver.com slash kickass and try any of their services free. That's appriver.com slash kickass. We're also sponsored by Google Cloud Platform. What can your data tell you? With Google Cloud Platform, use machine learning at scale to build better products. Google Cloud's AI provides modern machine learning services with pre-trained models and a service to generate your own tailored models. Their platform is now available as a cloud service to bring unmatched scale and speed to your business applications. It predicts so your business can thrive. Click now to learn more about Google Cloud Platform or go to g.co slash getcloudai. Again, that's g.co slash cloud AI. And now, back to the podcast. You seem to have a pretty healthy skepticism when it comes to conspiracy theories and misinformation online. Uh, You've written on the subject at length. Uh, When I think of the rise of Nazism or African dictators who spread rumors that AIDS is an American plot, or amazingly that AIDS maybe even doesn't exist, it does seem that authoritarianism and conspiracy thinking go hand in hand. If that's the case, does it concern you, the rise of the Alex Joneses in this country and the proliferation and, and even legitimization of conspiracy theories right now?
1: You're making a great point, and the book touches on this, but it's, it's, it's a fundamental point. And um, uh, I want to think a little bit with you about, about why this happens. So if you look at the history of authoritarian movements in the world, including the unsuccessful ones in the United States, they're just what you say. They point to some internal or external enemy who is conspiring to make horrible things happen. And Nazi Germany, of course, is the extreme case with all these uh, thoughts about Jews, and in fact, after World War II, there were discussions with former Nazis who were, you know, extremely good people in my view, uh, but you know, regular people who had regular jobs right. and yeah. who didn't particularly hate Jews. They certainly didn't want them to be killed. The ones I'm speaking of, but they didn't like Jews, and they did think that they were involved in conspiracies against Germany. and And it, it must be either that there's a Relationship uh, in practice. I think there are two ways to think about it. A relationship between, in practice between what makes an authoritarian leader of a mild sort or of uh, you know the real deal sort um, appealing, and it must be people are scared. Mm-hmm. So in our history, uh, when we've had movements in the direction, people have been scared, or the authoritarian leaning person is, is scaring them. And that can lead uh, to horrible things. And, you know, on the left and the right, you can choose your favorite examples. Um, George Wallace was a, um, you know, a uh, conspiracy theory type uh, of person in the sense, uh, not sure how much he pointed to literal conspiracies, but certainly the enemies within. And uh, uh, my understanding is that some people who are kind of... uh, uh, Gun enthusiasts speak about socialism and gun robbing and conspiracies to do all sorts of really horrible things when the only idea really is to reduce the risk of gun violence while also recognizing that people have a right to – be peaceable gun owners. And so if people aren't scared, they're not going to be drawn to an authoritarian leader. But the other possibility which you're pointing to is that the authoritarian leader might be a product of pre existing fear rather than someone who fuels the fear. Mm-hmm. So the conditions are, are ripe for someone to say, you "No, know, let me lead when people are thinking, oh my god, hell is breaking loose because of what those people are, are organizing. So your point about Alex Jones and uh, uh, like-minded types, let's say, I have found myself to my uh, astonishment I think is too weak a word but it's in the direction <laughs> actually used by Alex Jones types and discussed as someone who has these, um, uh, these plans to do terrible things. Uh, when when I worked in the US government, I was in charge of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and information right. actually means paperwork reduction efforts. It doesn't mean <laughs> propaganda. It <laughs> means okay. reduce, reduce paperwork. It's about forms. It's not <laughs> about it. – and so I saw, I saw a close-up. It is worrisome yeah. because if you are – you know, going about your life and you're maybe drawn to conspiracy theories or not, but you hear on the radio someone who seems sincere and passionate saying there's some plot to do something horrible, uh, it's not crazy to think, oh, my God, uh, there is an enemy within. Mm-hmm. And, and that. And that, that is a big problem for our country today. So I think if anything, we are lowballing the magnitude of the problem for our democracy of a... Um, system of social media and communications that's so radically decentralized that the distinction between truth and um, craziness is often very hard to make out.
0: Well, yeah, and in a 2008 paper that you co-authored called Conspiracy Theories, um, you actually advocated for the government to take a more proactive role in debunking and combating blatant misinformation and deliberate disinformation online. Opponents, of course, expressed concerns that this would lead to the Obama administration policing the Internet and curbing free speech. But if there had been some sort of a legitimate fact-checking program like that in 2016, Do you think it could have gone a long way toward blunting Russia's efforts to influence the election? It's a great
1: question. Uh, So that paper, I can say, was published in the Journal of Political Philosophy. I was a co-author. My own conception of it was it was about how to combat um, terrorist threats from abroad. It wasn't about Americans. And the right. ideas we used, my understanding is, they're in the intelligence community. They're not controversial ideas. That if there are people in a country that's you know threatening to us who think that America is responsible for nine eleven or something, to work with people there to send Americans there to uh, debunk the theories. That's that's not uh, that's we weren't original. That's not an original <laughs> idea. That's kind of common sense. Um, in terms of the Russian uh, actions, um, I think the, the, the argument of the paper really was focused on 9-11 mm-hmm. type uh, murderers and how to help um, prevent young people, let's say 19 years old in some country who are drawn to Islamic terrorism, to say, you know, America isn't your enemy and that stuff you're mm-hmm. hearing about us, it's not true. And either for Americans to say that or for Americans to work with people in those communities who know that that's how America is. It's not, you know, 9-11 wasn't an inside job. We're not trying to destroy a religion. To try to clarify this is, uh, is what the paper's about. And I think that is, a, you know, a strategy that makes some sense. The Russian problem is, uh, I think, naughtier. Can uh, no, not a n u g h <laughs> t y though probably that yeah. too, and it's <laughs> extremely ugly. And um, uh, the one essay in the books basically is all about that, and it is a threat to our democracy. It suggests and it can, that can happen here that isn't about uh, directly certainly authoritarianism coming to America, but it's an it in the sense of uh, a deep subversion of our democratic institutions by a country that has A, no respect for democratic institutions, and B, has designs on the weakening of the United States. And that is uh, very grave, and I think the way to think about it is that um, there's an old Marxist idea which is about class struggle, which is you heighten the contradictions. This comes from Marx and Lenin, which is one way to force a demise of capitalism is you heighten the contradictions so the proletariat sees you know, One way to think of it is the contradiction between the ideals of a capitalist society and the fact that they're stuck in poverty, say, and you heighten the contradictions to get them to rebel. Now, That's a Marxist idea. Russia is now using a version of it by speaking to, uh, let's say, uh, heated up people on the left and the right and getting them hotter mm-hmm. and making them think that their fellow citizens are um, – you know, enemies, or wanting to kill them, or wanting to humiliate them, or something, and that is heightening a, a contradiction in the in the roughly Marxist sense. And so, it's no accident that the former Soviet Union is using uh, the leading country that is Russia from the former Soviet Union is using a Marxist-inspired strategy, and it's uh, it is it is dangerous, and it's not less dangerous today than it was in two thousand sixteen, and it is uh, possibly. Um, Uh, 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 a serious undermining of our capacity to govern ourselves. Uh, What is troublesome I think about uh, President Trump, who on, on a number of issues, I should say, uh, in the regulatory side, which is kind of my neck of the woods, has had, had some very good initiatives, but he uses the uh, the same uh, phrasing and the same polarizing strategies that the Russians did. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, where the Russians would say, you know, under Trump you could say Merry Christmas, and the liberals won't let you say Merry Christmas. And then that's one of President Trump's you know, go-to lines. Under me, you can say Merry Christmas. Now, I'm all for being able to say Merry Christmas. <laughs> but to accentuate uh, they didn't allow you to say Merry Christmas, mm-hmm. I will, right. is to set Americans apart from each other.
0: Right. And, of course, he, he literally – Quote Stalin, you know, when he calls the media the enemy of the people. I want to spend another minute on Russia because as a legal scholar, I'd be curious to get your take on the investigation. Do you think that all of this smoke may lead to the top eventually when it's all said and done?
1: I wouldn't want to speculate. Mm-hmm. I really hope not. So, um as we're speaking now, there's no evidence, so far as I'm aware, that suggests the president was involved in anything involving Russia. And, uh, you know, it's let's call it a secular prayer mm-hmm. that the president of the United States is not implicated in something like that. Uh, but it is not good that there was at least one person on the Trump campaign, there's no reason to think he was in communication with respect to this issue so far as I'm aware of with the candidate, but who actually spoke with Russian agents about um, potential dirt against Hillary Clinton. And I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, and I can say if Russian agents approached me or anyone I knew and said, we have dirt on Republican candidates, man, oh man, that's not a conversation you have. And I, I wouldn't say that that action is treason as constitutionally defined, which has a narrow definition, but it is traitorous and yeah. very, very grave. And my hope is it's you know, sharply limited to that guy or a few people who are low level.
0: As someone who preaches against the siloing of political discourse, particularly in your last book, Hashtag Republic, when you were editing this new book, did you purposely seek out different perspectives that might not necessarily be in line with your own? How did you go about choosing the contributors for Can It Happen Here?
1: Uh, Oh, completely. So I I wanted to have people who had some sort of um, historical perspective or uh, political perspective perspective that would add something. Mm-hmm. And so one of the authors is Jeff Stone, who's uh, left of center, but he's basically much more than that. He's the country's leading First Amendment expert, at both in terms of what the free speech principle is about and about the history of free speech. So I thought he would be able to speak to that. Uh, someone who's uh A Republican who worked for President Bush, Jack Goldsmith, has a beautiful essay, I think, on the deep state and how to think of its role in society, and I thought that would be very valuable. Uh, There's a a guy who works on uh, social change, why revolutions happen, why they don't, from Duke named uh, Timur Kuran. He's actually from Turkey. I believe he's right of center, though I don't really know. I'm, I'm pleased not to think that he's left of center. He's just interested in uh, self-government and authoritarianism. Uh, Tyler Cowen, who's fantastic, kind of a national treasure, um, the best blogger in the world I think, but he's also someone who writes books and articles that are fantastic. Uh, he's certainly not left of center. He's uh, right of center uh, I think he's so good he could be have any relationship to center and i 'd be honored to have him write for the book. Mm-hmm. but the fact that he is not you know a left of center kind of guy is definitely a plus, mm-hmm. and there are other people in the book I have no idea of what their political views are so uh-huh. Uh, Karen Stenner, uh, an expert on authoritarianism, Um, I have no idea whether she's left, right, or center, and and that that's a plus. Eric Posner, who wrote the first essay uh, called "The Dictator's Handbook," he's extremely hard to pigeonhole, Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know what his politics are.
0: Yeah, that was an excellent essay that he wrote. And one thing that comes up a lot in these essays is the idea that American authoritarianism probably wouldn't be some bold all at once power grab, but it would happen very slowly and incrementally. Now, one thing that we know about Donald Trump that he doesn't have, aside from a filter or conscience or humility, uh, you know, actually I'll amend that. Among the hundred or so normal human qualities that Donald Trump lacks is the ability to sit still, bide his time and do things in any kind of gradual, more measured way. Does his own impatience perhaps prevent him from pursuing this kind of slow, stealthy authoritarianism you talk about?
1: I, I don't think President Trump has an authoritarian – my own view is anything mm. like an authoritarian design on our country. I don't think he has that. Uh, I think he has pr- particular goals and uh, particular frustrations and um, uh, where the goals you know, have something to do with um, national security or immigration or wall building and uh, um, economic – growth and tax cuts I think he cares of course about all of those things um, the frustration that he feels which any president feels seems particularly acute and kind of red in color on, with him mm-hmm. and and that's not um, ideal from the standpoint of you know preserving our norms so the fact that he treats people who disagree with him or, struggle to stop his policies as um, deserving contempt or some uh, uh, some nickname that makes them look like they are criminals or uh, horrible, That that's not good. Mm-hmm. The idea of speaking of jailing or investigating people he defeated in an election, I think that fits with what you say about his impatience. And it, it, it does suggest that the tale that some of the authors tell of authoritarianism kind of slowly and by increments, that's not at all like what uh, Trump has in mind. I think mm-hmm. he doesn't have authoritarian designs. But the collapse of norms yeah. in a kind of slow way, that he is contributing to. And I think we, we all should really worry about that and the fact that the – Contributors to the book you know aren't, aren't shouting you know, uh, against the current president even though some of them are very unenthusiastic about him. They treat him with civility. I think that's um, really important because if you meet fire with fire, mm-hmm. then uh, you become your enemy and, and then the norms are done. And yeah. there is a risk I think in the next few years that, that we're going to get there. And it's basically President Trump's fault if we do, but it's also the fault of those who, um, you know, don't say, look, our system is one of um, of self-government, and uh, certainly the people who supported President Trump are, are fellow Americans, and they have views, and they need to be treated with respect. But mm-hmm. the uh, the demonization of political opponents, which pre- President Trump certainly is uh, willing to do. That is part of uh, potentially an incremental shift to to Mm -hmm. something we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily authoritarianism but something that is uh, ugly.
0: Some of what you've said echoes what I heard from David Frum and David K. Johnston on the show recently. They both talked about the subtler ways that the Trump administration is eroding institutions from within, whether it's the State Department, the EPA, the Justice Department. Might those in some ways be just the kind of gradual precursors to authoritarianism that you actually talk about in this book? Or is that overstating it? I
1: don't think so. I think they're precursors to mm-hmm. something else. Um, so let, let's kind of go case by case maybe. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, um, I worked with them you know, for a number of years. And I saw them kind of shortly after the Bush administration when they felt uh, demoralized and diminished. Now, that's how they felt. And that's not necessarily – you know, something that everyone should be alarmed by because maybe they were, you know, too left and Bush cabined them. That's possible. Uh, But it's uh, not ideal when people who are devoting their lives to protection of clean air and clean water feel demoralized and disempowered and leave. And I think what we're seeing under the current administration and the EPA is a more extreme version of that where – Uh, It's possible, I think, for uh, someone to think, you know, we've uh, imposed too much of an economic burden on businesses through environmental regulation and we need to back off significantly. But at the same time, we are deeply committed to clean air and clean water. And we're going to carry through hard on those enforcement missions consistent with our economic goals. And that's not demoralizing. But I think we're seeing something demoralizing and that makes it uh, not easy, not impossible, but not easy to recover. And that's not authoritarianism. It's more a demoralized, diminished uh, entity whose basic job is really important to keep the air clean and the water Safe. And even if they are basically doing that today, they're doing that with um, Mm -hmm. fear that the head of their agency doesn't like them very much or doesn't trust them or something. So there's that. The State Department's a a different picture. And here I would defer to my wife, Ambassador Power, who worked in the State (laughs) Department, who has a chapter in the book. But my understanding is that the State Department, it's kind of parallel to the EPA situation, but in some ways worse for long-term recovery, not because of authoritarianism, but because of a diminished role for the United States in the world because our uh, ability to uh, create new diplomats who would be, let's say, the next generation's negotiators and our ability to uh, retain people who've so far devoted their lives at not fantastic pay and certainly terrible hours to helping maintain peace in the world, they are leaving or feeling disrespected And to recover that will be really hard. So the nightmare scenario there is not about authoritarianism in the United States but is – and I think this is a a very realistic fear – is authoritarian uh, running uh, loose in the world where China and Russia are filling a gap that America's, uh, let's say, um, uh, weakened – role in world affairs uh, has opened up. And China and Russia, you know, we all should be full of admiration for the people of China and Russia. I've been to China. I have many friends from Russia and Americans do and Chinese, and Ameri- Chinese Americans and Russian Americans are all around. And so this is not an attack on the countries, but the leadership are, are – uh, these are not friends of democracy. And so mm-hmm. it's very bad for the world. It's not good for other nations, which could go authoritarian or democratic, to see uh, that the United States has um, hollowed out its uh, its capacity to participate in uh, settling global problems.
0: Yeah. And since you mentioned your wife, Samantha Power, I, I just want to say I saw Greg Barker's terrific documentary, The Final Year, the other day, and I was really moved by the degree of empathy she brought to the job as U.N. ambassador. You know, we're used to seeing diplomats and politicians approach crises around the world with a certain degree of detachment, but I think your wife has a really big heart. <laughs> That's quite a woman you've got there.
1: Well, thank you. I, I, uh, You know, I got to live with her and see the fact that if people are suffering and she couldn't do anything mm-hmm. about it, it would uh, eat her up. But in a productive way, that is, it would be a motivation to see if at 2 in the morning or 4 in the morning or 6 a.m. she could get on the phone and maybe help somebody.
0: Yeah, she's a remarkable woman. By all means, tell her I'd love to get her on the podcast one of these days. (laughs) Uh, Will do. Well, well, before we go, I know you're a big Star Wars fan, Cass. Uh, If you had to pick, what Star Wars character would you compare Trump to?
1: Well... I think in his self-image he's a little like Han Solo. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's that's what how he, he sees himself. <laughs> um, but you know what? Uh, I don't think he's going to be able to do the Kessel Run <laughs> in under twelve parsecs. <laughs> All right. Sorry, Mr. President.
0: Fair enough. Well, once more, the book is called "Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America." Cass Sunstein. Thanks for talking with me.
1: Thank you. Real pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Cass Sunstein for joining me on the podcast. Order his new book, *Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America*, on Amazon, and follow him on Twitter at, at @CassSunstein. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at Kick-Ass News Pod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. kick News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.